Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with Graham Wood. Graham is a staff writer at The Atlantic, and he's the author of a wonderful book on the Islamic State titled The Way of the Strangers, Encounters with the Islamic State. And today we're talking about Mohammed bin Salman, otherwise known as MBS, the crown prince and de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia. We discuss the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the rather astounding imprisonment of Saudi elites in the Ritz-Carlton, MBS's recent reforms in Saudi Arabia, and his Vision 2030 campaign, Saudi relations with Israel, the posture of the Biden administration, energy policy, Saudi efforts to deprogram jihadists, the strange case of Musa Cerantonio, John Walker Lind, the current condition of the Islamic State, and then Graham and I talk about the war in Ukraine and Russian propaganda, how Finland has made itself invasion-proof, and other topics. Anyway, Graham is always great. I hope you enjoy it. And now I bring you Graham Wood. I am here with Graham Wood. Graham, thanks for joining me again. Sam, it's good to be back. So you have a cover article in the April issue of The Atlantic titled Absolute Power on Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia. And it's a fascinating profile on him, and it sounds like you had a very interesting trip. Let's, uh, I want to cover that, and then we can cover some related issues. But, um, you know, MBS, I think, came to more or less everyone's attention in the aftermath of the Khashoggi murder, as uh, ghoulish as that was, uh, which I'm sure we'll get to. Uh, But it sounds like you interviewed him twice on this trip, and let's track through that. Before we jump into your actual experience here, give me the short bio of MBS. Who, who is he and, and why should anyone care about him? So MBS is first and foremost the son of his father, who is King Salman, who's in his late 80s and enjoying a, a very soft final few years as, as king of Saudi Arabia. And every one of the kings of Saudi Arabia since the founding king have been sons of King Abdulaziz. So they've just been getting older and older. And MBS, now 36 years old, is the first of his generation to be in line for the throne, for really in line for the throne, where he's almost certainly going to become king. And so uh, his father has put him in charge of the country for the last five years or so. And he has been in charge of a, a great big modernizing effort trying to bring the country into the 21st or maybe at least the 20th century. So integrating it with the global economy and reforming it in, in almost every way except for the political, which is why he remains the, um, he will remain when, when he's king, the absolute monarch of Saudi Arabia. Yeah, and he, he's considered somewhat a bulwark against jihadism, uh, and, and we'll get into the details that, there, that, that's pretty interesting. Um, and he's also a bulwark against Iran, from our point of view, us being primarily the U.S., We'll get into the, the jihadism piece, but what's your view of 
the geopolitical balancing act that uh, we're doing or, or may yet attempt to do between Saudi Arabia and Iran? Well, Iran, I mean, this is part of the question about jihadism, because Iran is an avowedly jihadist state of a very different sort. It's a, it's a Shia jihadist state. And Saudi Arabia, although it's produced a very large number of Sunni jihadists, has been an enemy of, of Iran since Iran's conversion into a jihadist mm. state in the late 1970s. So when, when we say that MBS is an enemy of jihadism and an enemy of Iran, that, that, is, all, that is all true with a few asterisks. And it, it's, it's pretty important that, you know, that the United States uh, has allies in the region who are, who are opposed to Iran moving against it. Now, of course, the issue is that it's an extremely imperfect ally, that Saudi Arabia is, is, is not a democracy, doesn't share very many of our values. And so any deal that we make with them as an ally against Iran is going to be one that, that we have to really pinch our noses and, and, and make. So that's, that's the sort of devil's bargain that we've had throughout the history of Saudi Arabia and pretty acutely with, with MBS. Yeah, yeah. Well, so well, let's come to the man himself. So there's a passage in your article that jumped out at me. Again, you, you interviewed him twice, and uh, you wrote of this encounter, difficult questions caused the crown prince to move about jumpily, his voice vibrating at a higher frequency. Every minute or two, he performed a complex motor tick, a quick backward tilt of the head, followed by a gulp, like a pelican downing a fish. He complained that he had endured injustice, and he evinced a level of victimhood and grandiosity, unusual even by the standards of Middle Eastern rulers. So this, this is not an altogether flattering picture of the man, and uh, give me any more uh, details you want there, but I know that there was a, a Saudi response to your article, which uh, I'd like to discuss here. What was, what, how was all of this received? Yeah, well, first of all, some of the words that you've just read out are not things, to put it mildly, that you could say if you're a Saudi or if, if you were stuck in Saudi Arabia, as I am not. I'm, I'm not in Saudi Arabia anymore. To describe the crown prince's evident neurological issues, mm. to describe his crackdown on dissent, all of these things are strictly forbidden, and that is indeed part of the crackdown on dissent. So MBS, for, for years, there ha has been, you know, Saudis are very active on social media, and there has been a, a number of taboo subjects. And yeah, the, the, the physical health of the crown prince is one of them. My experience with him was that, just as I say in the piece, that, that he's got a... He's a man of immense power, immense and almost completely unchecked power, who has no experience of being told no. I mean, he has been crown prince and the ruler of a very, very wealthy country for five years. And before that, he was the son of the extremely influential governor of Riyadh province. So this is a guy who's always had a lot of people around him saying you can do whatever you like and now has the power to really you know make his 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 imagination run wild and some of those things are some of the things that he wants to do are, are i think it's fair to say good you know he he has reined in the religious police there's a number of freedoms that saudis have that they haven't had before but look if you spend any amount of time in a room with the guy you can tell that he is not socially or psychologically adjusted in a way that's familiar to you mm. if, if you've 
spent most of your time among people who don't have this extremely bizarre and empowered background. It doesn't mean that he can't you know, talk to you intelligently or even in a friendly and pleasant way. But look, we're talking about someone who, with the snap of his fingers, can have people's heads cut off, can change geopolitics. And that's a really, it's a really complicated place to, to be in if you're 36 years old and have not really been trained mm-hmm. as if anyone can be trained for that kind of power at all. So it, it really was once I ended up sitting in the room with him a, a couple times, an experience unlike any I've ever had. Mm. How concerned were you for your own security? Not very. I mean, I, I knew Jamal Khashoggi personally. I'd, I'd spoken to him just weeks before his death. So, I, I mean, I, I was... Let's remind people who Jamal was in this context. Yeah, Jamal Khashoggi was a longtime writer, figure in the Saudi government and in Saudi media. Uh, he had worked for the Saudi government as a press attache in D.C. and in London. And about the time that MBS came to power, Jamal's, his patronage just dried up completely. All the people who he was relying on to be his, his champions within government were pushed aside in favor of MBS's people. So Jamal went into exile. Uh, he got a column and wrote a few, of, a few columns for the Washington Post. And in October 2018, he went to Istanbul, whose government, an Islamist government, was, was supporting him. And when he went into the, the Saudi consulate in, in Istanbul, he never came out. And all we know is that he was murdered there at, by henchmen of the crown prince, and that his body's never been found. And it probably w- was cut to smithereens and, and flushed away somewhere. Mm. So when, when I went to see MBS, of course, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, the, one of the most prominent Saudis I knew before had been physically disintegrated at the behest of this guy. And that that person was, you know, a Washington Post writer, uh, a contributor to the Washington Post, as I have been too. So, yeah, I, I was, of course, it, it, it crossed my mind. Who knows what's going to happen in this interaction? On the other hand, it's also just objectively true that, that MBS and his reforms for Saudi Arabia were set back by years, maybe permanently, mm. because of what he did to, to Jamal Khashoggi. He had no idea that this was going to be the, the outcome of, of that assassination. And so, to say the least, if I disappeared into a meeting with MBS and you know, never showed up again or, or was you know, next seen with fewer fingernails or toes than I came in with, then that too would set back the, the image of MBS as someone who can, who can be dealt with and who can be understood by, and, and you know, worked with by the West. Yeah, we should say in this context that uh, MBS denies having had anything to do with the, the murder of Khashoggi, and he even denied, however implausibly, ever reading any of his articles. And he said, he said that Khashoggi was not even in the top 1,000 of people who he would want killed, which is kind of an interesting way of uh, framing his total non-involvement in this. But so you publish this article and then you get some response from the Saudis, I think one of which included, you will never be allowed in Saudi Arabia again. Well, the, first tell me what happened there. And, and I'm just wondering if you have any security concerns subsequent to publishing this. I mean, we have you know, just, I, quite famously, again, people may have forgotten this, but you know, MBS seems to have hacked Jeff Bezos's cell phone, right? I mean, so it's like it, it, he can reach out and screw with people, apparently, at some distance. What are your thoughts on that score? 
Yeah. So the, the Saudi response was at, at first, they were unsure what to do with it because the, the first thing to know about MBS is in the last few years is that he's been hiding. So he has not spoken to the, to the Western media at all mm. for two years until he spoke to me. So th they weren't really sure how this interview would be received. And I think it, it speaks to the, either the obtuseness or maybe the incompetence of MBS's people that they didn't realize that the things that he said about Khashoggi, that he you know, wasn't even, even in the top thousand people who MBS might want to kill, that they didn't, I don't think, even realize how that was going to sound to people who were not, you know, people in the West who, who were accustomed to free media and not being threatened with, with death by desert kings. So I think that when I left, I, I didn't expect that the Saudis would come after me in a physical way. I thought there was a possibility, maybe even a likelihood that my my phone was hacked. So I took steps to to make sure that that didn't happen. Physically, I felt pretty safe. Now, in social media and in you know unofficial ways that that the Saudis can can reach you or let you know that they're thinking about you, there were plenty of reasons to see that to, to think that I, I might be uh, concerned about how things were going to go. I mean, there were videos that came out of Saudi Arabia with my picture and and Jamal's asking. Oh, is after this interview, will Graham Wood be the next Jamal Khashoggi? Mm -hmm. No, I, I didn't think that was going to happen. But the Saudis, pretty soon after they read the piece, digested it, and figured out how it was going to be understood, and noticed that there were things in it that that included unutterable statements about MBS and and his reforms, they started pushing really hard to sort of rewrite the article to pretend it said things that it didn't say. And then to to accentuate things that that MBS either didn't say at all, or said quite differently, and to de-emphasize the 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 wilder stuff, like the things that he said about Khashoggi, and then some of the things that he said probably more aggressively than he intended about his uh, desire to rein in the jihadists and and religious police. Right, right. Well, as far as a raw expression of power, you know, and uh, sociopathy, it's hard to beat what he did in 2017 when he imprisoned some of the most powerful people in Saudi Arabia in the Ritz-Carlton. Describe that episode, what was happening there. Yeah, the, the Ritz-Carlton episode was one of the most amazing things that's happened in world politics for quite some time. I, I mean, I've stayed in the Ritz-Carlton. I, I, I tried to order a pizza there, and they, they said there's a one on the menu that costs 250 bucks for a personal pizza. Mm. So the, the, this is, uh, every inch of it is the Ritz. It, it's a five-star, six-star, I don't know if there's seven-star, but it would be at hotel. And MBS suddenly, like overnight, turned his government into a, a, a full prosecutorial machine where all sorts of people, who, including the richest, most powerful people in the kingdom, were taken to the Ritz, imprisoned there, and then told, we know you're corrupt. You're going to make a deal with us. You're going to give back, let's say, 90% of what you stole. Otherwise, we'll turn it over to the prosecutors, the real prosecutors, not the ones who are nice and take you to the Ritz, but the people who take you to, you know, not seven-star hotels, but real jails. And we'll see what they do with you. So in other words, he, he was willing to cut a deal with, with various people who, many of whom were members of his own family, who he thought had been corrupt. Uh, and he claimed it had been corrupt. And some of them almost certainly were. Hmm. So we're, we're talking about people who, who were accused of stealing literally billions of dollars from the Saudi government. And they were all told, 
make a deal or or the consequences will be dire. Now, of course, you can phrase this in, in different ways. And the MBS would like to everybody to know that he was being gentle. You know, this is the nicest way to deal with this. Other autocracies, let's say the People's Republic of China, would just shoot people in the back of the head. Uh, they would just take that money. There would be no writs. And I was told that his advisors presented that as one of the possibilities, either just go and kill everybody who's been stealing from the, from the treasury, or just kill a few people who are extremely prominent citizens. Instead, he, he, like he likes to put it, I, I took the gentler route hmm. and allowed people to negotiate. But of course, there's no negotiating with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. He, he, he basically controls everything about what the Saudi government does. And so for the next month or so, the Saudi government did nothing but try to get as much dirt as possible on these people, present them with dossiers of what they th thought they had stolen, and then tell them to cough up money. So you find people like Al-Walid bin Talal, who's the richest man in Saudi Arabia. And sure enough, he emerges from the Ritz. He seems unable to, to travel anymore. He made some deal whose terms he will not disclose. And when he's been interviewed about what happened in the Ritz, his voice does not sound like the voice of a man who's uh, at liberty to speak of, 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 of every detail. Mm. So in other words, even though it was the Ritz, they didn't make it easy on those who were interned there. Is he still unable to travel? As far as we can tell, I think he has traveled within the region, so to, to very stalwart Saudi allies mm. like the UAE. But Al-Walid bin Talal is someone who, in the past, you'd see in New York, London, yeah. uh, Saint-Tropez. And now, no, no. This is a man who's you know got not quite Bezos-level money, but you know the order of magnitude would be like Mike Bloomberg money. Mm -hmm. And now he can't go anywhere. Yeah, and he's someone who I think I've seen profiled on 60 Minutes, and he's a very cosmopolitan person. Yeah, he, he owns like a big chunk of, or has owned big chunks of things like Twitter or, and Citibank. Mm -hmm. He's like a major wheeler and dealer who's got friends in high places. And so if you can twist the screws in a way that, that gets him to be afraid of his, of his future, then that means, yeah, you've shown that you have real power. Now, I, I, I hasten to add, again, trying to put this in the Saudi perspective, for many Saudis, this was a really popular move, mm -hmm. imprisoning people in the Ritz, because they correctly, Saudis, ordinary Saudis correctly saw their government as extremely corrupt, that, that people were just taking money. And, you know, like between five and 10% of the Saudi national budget just goes to stipends for princes. So if you're an ordinary Saudi and you see that, then you have reason to believe that the government is not on your side, is, is being just milked constantly by powerful people. And so what they saw was the crown prince finally doing something about that. And so from what looks to us like a really bizarre way to, to siphon money out of powerful people, looks to a lot of Saudis like something that was a long time coming. Right. And it's also this quintessential strongman move. I mean, it's just the, you know, Tony Soprano as Crown Prince, or uh, he's right out of, the, of, a, of a Godfather movie. And he, he, he also shows a kind of capriciousness in the way he wields power, which um, you describe, which is frankly a little baffling, but I, I think you actually dissect the psychology of it. He will imprison people, you know, activists and reformers for calling for things which he then enacts. Like, I think the, the woman who was most responsible for advocating that women be allowed to drive, correct me if I'm wrong, but she was thrown in prison 
and he still changed the laws, uh, you know, thereafter allowing women to drive, but decided to imprison the, the most vocal activist for that reform. And he's done that on other points. So, it, I mean, this is just kind of, I mean, it is sadistic behavior, but uh, how, how do you think of it? What's the rationale? Yeah, it, it looks sadistic and capricious. And, you know, when it happened, when this female activist, Lujain al-Hathlul, was thrown in prison, the way that it was read by most people was that MBS is opposed to female driving, which has been illegal in Saudi Arabia for, for some time now. And it, it appeared to a lot of people like, okay, so his reforms, his, his reigning in the extremely conservative religious clerics, that's fake because he's not allowing women to drive. And then it turns out just very soon afterward, he allows women to drive. And he says now he wanted to make, let, he wanted to change the law, the law earlier. He wanted women to be able to drive long before Lujain al-Hathlul was imprisoned for, for, for calling for that. So why would he imprison someone who's calling for something that he himself was pushing for from the inside? And the answer is actually pretty simple. It, it, it's that it's not as she claimed that women have the right to drive because they're equal to men, it's that women have the right to drive for the same reason that Saudis have any rights, which is that the king or the ruler of the country grants them those rights. They have no rights otherwise. And so for, for her to say women inherently have this right hmm. actually was a direct threat against the kind of theory of the state that MBS represents. So you can say a lot of things. What you cannot say is that you have rights that, that don't flow from the monarch himself. And if you suggest that, then it's almost tantamount to treason. By the way, when Lujain was, was locked up, her, her family has told me she's not allowed to speak, although she's, she's technically free in Saudi Arabia mm. right now. They did not take her to the Ritz. They put her in prison. They had people visit her, torture her, threaten her. And this is not too long before Jamal Khashoggi was killed and dismembered. There was someone from MBS's own circle who came to her and said, what we're going to do to you, no one will ever hear about. Your body, parts of it will be thrown in the sewer. So a very Khashoggi-like threat mm -hmm. made you know, before the, 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 the famous case. So it, it was not just a, a slap on the wrist for someone who mildly offended the crown prince. It was someone who agreed with the crown prince about the gist of the policy and who was being threatened with death and dismemberment. What is the logic of torturing a prisoner out of whom you're not trying to get any information? I'm just assuming that was not the motive. I mean, what, what do you, what's going on there, do you think, just as a, now that we're attempting to enter the mind stream of sadists, what's happening there? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, uh, a sadist will do it because he likes it. That's mm -hmm. part one. Part two is uh, you can torture people into giving you confessions. You can torture people to deter, to deter others. In the case of Lujain and most of the other people who have been dissenting in any way from MBS's policies, what they've been trying to do is get them to admit that they are on Team Qatar. Mm -hmm. So the state of Qatar has been at loggerheads with Saudi Arabia for a few years now. Saudi Arabia has even, even had a, basically a, a blockade of Qatar that expired last year. But that for years, MBS, the official line of MBS and of Saudi Arabia was that Qatar is a terrorist state that's trying to destroy Saudi Arabia and trying to put the Muslim Brotherhood in power in its place. So they have imputed to Lujain and to others the motive of, of 
working on behalf of, of Qatar, trying to besmirch the name of Saudi Arabia and trying to work for the Muslim Brotherhood or some other combination of nefarious forces on the inside. Mm. And I, I think by torturing people, that's one of the goals is to, to get people to admit that. Okay. So, but as we said, on the other side of the balance, he is a genuine or semi-genuine reformer uh, or a genuine reformer whose reforms are, are in some cases, are of ambiguous uh, ethical import. Uh, what What is the Vision 2030 campaign and in what ways is he reforming beyond allowing women to drive? So MBS's Vision 2030, it's capital V Vision 2030. It's a, it's a, a, a a branded plan that he he came out with early in his reign is a total effort to reform Saudi Arabia and turn it into a country that's basically normal. I mean, it's it couldn't have been more tribal, pre-modern as of 10 years ago. And MBS said, all right, we're, we're going to do it all in one go, peel off the Band-Aid and allow all sorts of entertainment, all sorts of, of religious liberty and get rid of corruption and open up the, the economy to investment and to all sorts of new opportunities. And we're going to do it all, in, all at once so that by 2030, the, the, the transformation will basically be complete. So it's, it's a pretty extraordinary plan. I, I mean, I, I, I don't think because it's being run by a possibly sociopathic autocrat that we should dismiss it too quickly. Like mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia before, just to give a sense of what it was, it was, it was not just corrupt. I mean, there were all sorts of things that you just couldn't do there. Women couldn't drive, for one thing. Women couldn't travel. There's a guardianship law that pretty much just said if you, if you were a woman and you tried to show up at the airport with your passport and go somewhere, you would just be turned away. You, you, you would have to have a male guardian, basically a babysitter from your family, uh, who would allow you to go. Otherwise, otherwise, no. There were no movie theaters. There still is no drinking, although MBS strongly hinted that that would be in the future for Saudi Arabia. And there were these religious police, these hairy guys in capri pants who would, would go around every major city and thwack at you with a stick if you weren't doing Islam in the way that they liked. So this is a really, really backwards place. I think even, even MBS himself would probably admit that. And the idea of 2030 is that by 2030, Saudi Arabia will be like Dubai, only more so. That it's going to be totally modern. You'll have all the latest, you know, concerts and movies, and people will go there because they they see it as the the, the place where the economy is going to boom in the future. And all that MBS has been doing, by his light, is trying to make that happen. He says, "Look, you can whine to me about political freedoms, but what Saudis want is Vision 2030." And you know, mm. maybe political freedom someday, but for them, it's way more important that we no longer be a, a backward theocracy and that we be more like uh, like Dubai or, or you know, some other modern state. And he's opened relations with Israel, right? Not officially. So the UAE and Bahrain have, have normalized relations with Israel, exchanged mm. ambassadors, and Saudi Arabia hasn't done that yet. Mm. Now, there's clearly contact between the, between the two countries, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if it happened in the next couple of years. The fact that Saudi Arabia has the, the holy places of Islam, Mecca and Medina, and that the, the, the transformation of the country into a more secular place, it just isn't complete. So mm. I, I, I think that's made it, made it very difficult for 
relations to move quite as fast in the case of Israel. But he, you know, he told me pretty clearly that he sees Israel as a potential friend mm-hmm. and not as an enemy, which in itself is, is a pretty wild thing to hear from a presumptive king of Saudi Arabia. Mm. So what do you think we, uh, by we I mean, I guess the US here should do in light of this? Because currently the posture is overtly hostile between the Biden administration and MBS. And I mean, very much, this is the the knock-on effect of the the murder and dismemberment of Khashoggi. And as uh, I think you, as you point out in the article, you know, we have an example of someone like Assad in Syria, who was once celebrated for his his modernizing tendencies. What do you think? By I mean, just to take it from the present forward, what do you think Biden's posture should be with respect to MBS and what he's doing? Well, I, I think first of all, the Biden administration's posture toward MBS seems to be, we wish he didn't exist. And if there's a way for him to no longer be crown prince, we would like to see that happen. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 this to me seems, especially after having gone to Saudi Arabia you know, seven odd times during MBS's rule and seeing how entrenched he's, he's gotten during, during that time, that posture toward MBS seems like total wishful thinking. That is, you know, one Saudi foreign policy guy said to me, look, if that's the Biden administration's view, then they need a psychiatrist. They don't need an IR specialist. Mm. So it's, it's just not, it's just not going to happen. So my view is that, look, the, the Saudis, they are never going to be in their form of government, in their morality, compatible with mine. You know, I, I'm an American liberal small d Democrat who believes, you know, I believe in democracy and they're, they're never going to be democratic in my lifetime. That's my view. So what I think we need to do is, is, is figure out what are the pathways that we can encourage that move Saudi Arabia in directions that, that satisfy us, realizing that it's never going to get all the way. And there are some things that we can encourage, like the sort of new tolerance for religious minorities, which is, is still just barely starting. So Let's not get too excited about that quite yet. But the, 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 the transformation of Saudi Arabia into something other than an extremely conservative theocracy that, that winks at jihadism and maybe even encourages it, those are changes that we should, should encourage. And then there's a very difficult calculus that we have to take into account about the differences in values that we have and also about the sovereignty that we have to guarantee to, to other countries. You know, we, we don't have the, the opportunity to just go in and by our own fiat, tell Saudi Arabia no longer to be Saudi Arabia. We can encourage that and we can, we can make alliances that, that are true to our values, but we have to be realistic too about what's actually going to happen in Saudi Arabia, which most likely is going to be the ascent to the throne itself by MBS in the next few years. And mm-hmm. then barring his assassination or some you know, unforeseen biological event, his remaining on that throne for 50 years. So I think we need to see over the long haul how we can influence him. Now, the, the comparison to Bashar al-Assad is, is, I think, an important one because I remember distinctly when Bashar al-Assad came into power and there were hagiographic Western biographies that came out about him saying, look, this guy, he trained in London. He's an eye doctor. He's a man of science. Hey, we hear that he listens to Phil Collins in his free time. How bad mm-hmm. could he be? And of course, the answer is, 
apocalyptically bad, bad if <laughs> yeah. you're in Syria. So yeah. Phil Collins is, does not immunize you against becoming Satan. So mm. I, I think in the case of, of MBS, you could still see that. I mean, he is way more, he's way more repressive than his predecessors, and he might move further in that direction. I'm pretty sure that he would prefer not to. I'm pretty sure that, that he doesn't do this for fun. Uh, he does it in ways that are nonetheless inexcusable. But if there's a, a way to encourage him to not do these things and to remain in power and to execute the reforms that, that he's talking about, then we should find a way to do that. In the meantime, though, th this is going to be you know, yet another case where, where we are pinching our nose and having to work with autocrats who are doing some pretty horrible stuff, which, you know, in the last month or two alone means you know, he's executed literally dozens of people. So there's, there's a, a very long distance to go before we can be, you know, proud of any of the compromises we might make with him. Mm. Do we know anything about what would happen if we transition to alternative energy at the fastest possible pace? I mean, like, is the Saudi economy diversified at all at this point, or the wealth of the principal rulers diversified enough so that the kingdom wouldn't collapse if oil suddenly became next to worthless? So I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the Saudi economy. I, I, I drove around Saudi for weeks, just got in a rental car and drove randomly. And I, I could see that they were making efforts to to Saudiize, to nationalize the economy, which, which basically means getting Saudis to work for the first time, because the Saudi economy for years has been pretty much sucking oil out of the ground and, and selling it, which they do very, very well and usefully for the United States and others. So when driving around, you could see Saudis working in positions where they had clearly never worked before. In fact, they'd never worked anywhere before. Hmm. So you, you'd go to like hotels and find Saudis at the front desk doing a hilariously piss poor job trying to check you in at the hotel. Uh -huh. And then, you know, some Egyptian guy who had probably done that job for the previous 15 years would eventually hear the commotion at the front desk as, as I was trying to check in and then say, oh, let me help you and give you the rate card or whatever I was asking for. And so the ability of Saudis to just turn on a dime from a petro rentier state to an, a diversified economy, I think there's, that's, that's open to doubt, and I haven't seen it actually working. Although the effort is clearly there. It's, 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 they're really trying to make that happen. But no, for the foreseeable future, Saudi is going to get all of its leverage and most of its money from sucking oil out of the ground. And you, know, you can see that to this day, like MBS and his, his stance toward Putin. Where does he get any of his power? It's because he has this nearly unique ability to pump more or less oil according to his, his wishes mm. on that day. So that's going to continue to be, to be the case. And a, a turn toward alternative energy cannot possibly happen fast enough to prevent him from having that kind of power. Mm. Okay, so what of uh, his fairly surreal efforts to deprogram jihadists in prison? How, how, <laughs> in what do they consist? And, and what was your interaction on that front? This was something I did not expect at all. So there's a, a very famous prison in Saudi Arabia called Hayer Prison, just south of Riyadh. And uh, one of MBS's advisors said, why don't you go take a look at Hayer? And you know, I, I'm a big jihadism nerd, I spent a lot of time looking at Al-Qaeda and ISIS. So 
he said, you'll find plenty of ISIS guys there who will be willing to talk to you. And uh, it was true. There were more Al-Qaeda than ISIS, but there, were, there was both there. What the Saudis were doing with them just defied belief, though. And I, I say this all with a great big caveat that I was speaking to people who were in prison and who, the moment I left, would be subject to the whims of Saudi government jailers. So who knows what they really believed? But I, I, I will tell you what was, what was actually happening on the ground, which was that they had decided, after years of trying jihadist deprogramming, that it pretty much just didn't work. I mean, you take a bunch of jihadists, and then you tell them, why don't you really read the Quran? Why right. don't you talk to the following clerics who uh, have also really read the Quran? And by the way, who get their paychecks directly from the Saudi government. And you know, they will tell you the correct interpretation. And once you realize that it's correct, you will be only too happy to spend the next 10 years in prison and then be free and no longer a jihadist. And this, this just didn't work out very well. People did not they were not convinced by talking to government employees that, that the government employees knew Islam better than they did. The U.S., by the way, does its own version of this, except without any clerics at all. It just puts them in a room and sees what happens after 20 years, in the case of John Walker Lynn. So neither of these approaches seemed to, to bear any fruit. What the Saudis had done in higher prison was totally different. They, instead of getting clerics gave the jihadists like an executive MBA course. So they were all programmed, reprogrammed to become office drones. Mm. And they created a company with a diverse set of services and interests, doing laundry, making trinkets, cultivating vegetables, raising bees for honey, painting and selling the paintings, doing graphic design. They'll soon, I was told, have clients outside the prison. So right now they're just working like in, in small quantities for, uh, to sell up right at the prison to employees of the prison or right outside mm -hmm. it. So th these jihadists were, were put into a corporation. They, they didn't talk at all, at all about jihadism. They were just given computers and spreadsheets and titles like CEO and chief financial officer and HR manager. And the Saudis figured, all right, we'll fill their time with this and they'll have some marketable skills perhaps when they leave. But in any case, they'll have something to do other than think about jihadism all the time. And I spoke to many of them. And you know, it's again, difficult to tell how honest they're being, but they said, look, what we really needed to do was have something else on our minds, and this gives us something else on our minds, and we greatly prefer this, and it seems to be, seems to be much better. And you know, some of them would even say to me, as as starkly as this, that, that before they say we had this vision of a jihadist paradise, and it it turned out to be fake. Like we went to Syria, we were nearly killed. Turned out Baghdadi didn't have things right, and then we've come back and we have a vision that something. That's more normal. It's it's movie theaters and restaurants and not being hassled by religious police everywhere we go. And it's Vision 2030. So we've replaced our jihadist vision with this nationalist vision. And uh, if that doesn't give you at least some pause with mm. the nationalist vision and the jihadist vision, then then you might not be paying attention because it's a it's a really odd view of of how things might work. It's at least 
I mean, the, the other approaches didn't work at all. So I'm at least heartened to see that they're trying something else. And th this seemed crazy enough that it, it might be worth a shot. Mm. This actually connects with another article you had in The Atlantic in recent weeks about, um, if memory serves, your, your favorite Australian jihadist, Musa Cerantonio, uh, who had a, it sounds like he had a complete change of heart and offered a significant mea culpa around having recruited people for the Islamic State. Uh, what, what happened there? And and maybe we, maybe we can relate it to the case of John Walker Lind, who you just mentioned, who, who, if people have forgotten, was the so-called American Taliban who was found in one of our initial skirmishes in Afghanistan and then thrown in prison. And I think, uh, what did he serve, 15 years? He served 17 uh, out of a 20-year sentence. Mm -hmm. and, and it sounds like he's completely unrepentant. So maybe, yeah, maybe talk about... Um, Antonio and, and, and what accomplished that change of heart, and then, then we can talk about your dealings with uh, John Walker Lind and why, why he's such an intractable case. Yeah, so Musa Cerantonio is an Italian-Australian. Mm -hmm. uh, he's in his late 30s, uh, and he was one of the biggest foreign propagandists for ISIS back in ISIS's heyday about five years ago. Musa was, he's also a really funny guy. He's huge nerd, Monty Python fan. Mm -hmm. I would go hang out with him. And he had been caught by the, by the government of the Philippines and sent back to his native Australia. And his passport was taken away. So all he could do was propagandize, which is rather than, than travel to ISIS territory, which meant that I could go find him and talk to him and hang out with him, which I did on multiple occasions. Now, pretty soon after my last conversation with him, he, he tried to get in a boat and go to ISIS territory in the Philippines. And he was caught, northern tip of Australia, about to launch his boat into shark-infested <laughs> waters, and he's been in prison ever since. Lucky mm -hmm. for him. And in prison, it, it turns out, uh, he's had a really big change of heart. So he sent me a letter first, and we've had conversations since. He outlined the reasons for his changing his views about ISIS. And you know, described his his weird hobbies in prison. But the main thing that he's he's decided is he's no longer Musa. He's Robert, uh, which is his, his birth name before he converted and as a as a teenager. And he's now no longer with ISIS and no longer a Muslim. So he told me that one of his main interests in Islam, which you know brought him to ISIS, was the end of the world, which the Quran has a few things to say mm -hmm. about, and it mentions these sort of subhumanoid creatures called Gog and Magog, who are held somewhere on Earth behind an iron wall in Central Asia. This is all in the 18th chapter of the Quran. Mm -hmm. And so Musa said to me, I've always wondered, you know, we have Google Earth now. How is it that we haven't found Gog and Magog behind this iron wall? And he wasn't entertaining the possibility at that point that, that there's no such thing. But he, he decided in prison, I'm going to take a little more time to figure mm -hmm. out what the Quran's talking about here. And so he, he looked at a figure who's mentioned in the same breath as, as Gog and Magog, who's called the Dhulqarnayn. And this figure is, is historically been identified with Alexander the Great. Although Dhulqarnayn in the Quran is described as a monotheist king, which Alexander the Great was mm -hmm. not. So 
Musa decided it can't be Alexander, but he started reading this body of literature, which is essentially fan fiction about Alexander that was written in late antiquity. It's called the Alexander Romance, and some of it's written in Aramaic. And what he discovered, to his own satisfaction anyway, was that Dulkarnain wasn't Alexander, but was plagiarized from this fan fiction about Alexander, which means that part of the Quran was fiction, which means that the Quran could not be the inerrant Mm. word of God. And and Musa is a, a linguist who actually reads Aramaic, right? Yeah, he, he said to me, I, I, finally, I, I realized why I'd been learning Aramaic all these years is so I could fact check the Quran using the Alexander right. romance. <laughs> and then he decided, yeah, this, this must, all be, must all be wrong. So it, it, in other words, the sex slavery didn't do it for him. Right. The mass executions didn't do it for him. None of this did it for him. But eventually finding some little things in Aramaic that, that seemed to be cribbed in the 18th chapter of the Quran that finally did. So he, he's totally changed his tune. And, you know, he says he's an atheist. He admires Richard Dawkins now uh, and has a, a very different view of the world. And you must view this as actually honest and uh, real, this change of heart? Well, you know, I, I can't see into Musa's soul, such as he mm-hmm. has one. <laughs> but I, 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 have, I have talked to him a lot at this point and have looked for any sign that he's making any of this up, any sign that, that he's just saying this to get leniency. And it seems like it's probably genuine. First of all, he could have tried to get leniency a long time ago, and he actually might have gotten it. So it's, it's long past the point where it could actually do him any good. And then if you spend enough time talking to people, which is why journalists like me spend so much time doing so, you get a sense of you know, they, they can't keep up the act forever. So the things that they don't want to say, they, they start accidentally saying. Mm-hmm. At no point has he shown some unintentional flash of his former jihadism. He, he was almost entirely persuasive to me. Now, th- that said, he's still, you know, p- part of what made him such an influential character was he, he's possessed of enormous self-confidence. He's very smart. And he still has that kind of partially justified egotism. So mm. he's still the same Musa Cerantonio that he used to be. He's just redirected, sincerely, I think, his, his efforts toward other causes. Yeah, I mean, as comical as this uh, self-deprogramming is, I find it totally plausible. I mean, it, it really, it, you, know, you know, this is an expression of my own bias here, but it fits in with what I think is psychologically true of most of these, you know, truly committed jihadists, and which is to say, I believe, my, my theory of mind about them is that they actually do care about what is true, and if they, if for some reason they thought the Quran was no longer the word of God, well then that, that matters, and, and because they, they really have all, all this time been motivated by its promise of hellfire for non-believers, etc., and and that's why, I mean, as perverse as it is, that's why the violation of a modern moral norm like don't take sex slaves um, or don't, you know, needlessly behead Yazidis, that doesn't force a change in worldview. But, you know, finding some passages in Aramaic that are clearly precursors of what wound up in the Quran, that could be a deal breaker. 
Yeah, I think that's right. With Musa in particular, finding little internal inconsistencies just mattered a lot more. I mean, you could have other people coming to him, say Muslims who are not part of ISIS, and say, look, there's this other stuff in the Quran that's actually very nice, that counsels mercy and so forth. And, and he'd say, okay, that's, that's, that's fine. But it, and he would accurately be able to point to history and scripture that suggests clearly other things. Now, when you find, on the other hand, something that is incontrovertible, logical inconsistency, then I'm not actually that surprised that he'd, he'd be willing to follow that to the logical conclusion. I asked him, are there other things that would have convinced you? And he, he said, oh, you know, there are things. And he said he'd come up with dozens more than just the Alexander romance bit. But he, he said, for example, it's, it's stated very clearly that the bodies of the martyrs will not decompose. They won't rot. So look, if I had gone to Syria and I had found corpses of martyrs that stank to high heaven, then that too would have convinced me, oh, this must be wrong. This must be wrong from the mm -hmm. beginning. So it's, it's, in some ways, it's the small things, but it's the incontrovertible small things rather than some kind of vision of the totality of the religion that persuaded him. And he said he's been, he's been attacked many times by people who have tried to persuade him in the manner of those Saudi government clerics who just have a different view of Islam. And they've made no difference at all for him. But evidently, the Aramaic does. So what of John Walker Lind? First, what, what have your dealings been with him? Have you actually spoken to him or just exchanged letters? What's the contact been like? I've never personally spoken to John Walker Lind. He, he was, during his 17 years in prison, most of which was in Terre Haute, Indiana, he was under special administrative measures, which, which meant that you couldn't have interviews with him, you couldn't talk to him. But I was able was he to. In, do you know? Um, was he in solitary? He spent no. He spent some of his time in solitary, uh, and then other time in a wing with other jihadists, mm -hmm. where he would be able to pray congregationally with them and have some human contact. But he basically spent his whole time in contemplation of jihadism mm -hmm. and of Islam. So he, he decided when he went in that he was going to use this time to read and become a Muslim scholar. So when ISIS became big, I, I wrote to him because. He was probably the most famous American to go to Al-Qaeda and asked him, well, what do you think of these people and how should we understand them? And my opinion, based on the letters that he wrote back to me, was that he liked ISIS very much. He seemed to have gone from Al-Qaeda to ISIS, and he encouraged me to think of them as good Muslims who would keep their word. He said I should go and visit them in person, um, and I'd find out all about these things. So nothing improved, as far as I can mm. tell, in his mind during the 17 years that he's spent in, in US prison. Now he's free. So he's kept quiet enough that I, I've heard no accounts of what he's doing, even where he's living, although I've, I've heard suggestions that it might be in Northern Virginia. He's certainly not rejoined the path of, of, of violence, because we would have heard about it by now. But mentally, it just 17 years in prison didn't do anything for mm. him positive. Are, are you um, actively trying to interview him? No, I'm not. <laughs> if he's out there and listening, then I'll happily go have a falafel with him. Mm. But um, you know, I, I hope he keeps his head down and, and uh, stays out of trouble. It would be interesting, though. It would be interesting to put someone like Musa Cerantonio in dialogue with him and to see 
you know, that would be an amusing podcast to see what that uh, attempted deprogramming might look like. I mean, it's a great conversation because he is someone who he's spent this time studying so he can have this kind of scholarly interaction. When Musa says that the Surat al-Kaf is plagiarized, then he's begging to be to be disagreed with by scholars, not just by jihadist scholars, mm-hmm. but by by scholars in general. And that's a conversation that that a lot of mainstream scholars will not have with him because they they would not deign to talk to a jihadist or maybe not talk with an apostate. John Walker Lind is someone who who you know he's been down much of Musa's path already, and so to find out where the divergence happens and why could be really valuable. I, I, I think that any conversation would probably violate their uh, release orders if it happens in the near future, though. Oh, really? You think um, it would be forbidden for them to talk on these topics? Yeah, well, John Walker Lind served his sentence, so it's yeah, possible he's, he's that he doesn't yeah. have any serious, you know, I, I'm sure he's being watched to some degree, but he might not be policed the same way that Musa almost certainly will be in the moment he's released. Mm-hmm. The, the Australians do not have the same views of civil liberties, and they will almost certainly be watching him ankle monitor, who knows. And usually one of the things that you're not allowed to do is have conversations with other people who are jihadists. So yeah, a, a conversation with John mm-hmm. Walker Lind would likely fall in that category. Right. Yeah, interesting. All right. Well, let me know if you ever connect with Lind. That would be interesting to try to facilitate a, a public conversation there. <laughs> so well, let's just close the loop on this. So what do... Obviously, the Islamic State is no longer much of a state uh, or a state at all, but what do we know about its remnants? What currently is, is happening in Syria and, and Iraq or anywhere else that that is going by the name of ISIS or the Islamic State? Right now, the Islamic State's most active provinces are actually in Africa. So in northern Mozambique, uh, until they were at least temporarily kind of run out of town by the Rwandans, they had a a really strong presence and were were creating havoc. Uh, And then in Nigeria, in the form of Boko Haram, there continues to be a, a lot of havoc. As for Syria and Iraq, they're still there. They just don't have the same power that they used to. I mean, it really mattered that ISIS had a state. And when I say state, I don't mean just a a notional state, but they were actually administering territory. They had offices, they had governors, they had people who were collecting taxes. And once they lost that in Iraq and Syria, the magic really wore off. And a lot of people who went to them because they thought, that the existence of a state where they could administer Islamic law meant that they were favored by God. And now they've reverted there to something less, although you know some of the sort of fundamentals of misgovernment there continue and make it possible that they'll, they'll resurge. But in the meantime, Africa seems to be the place where they're, they're having the most, most success. Mm. What do you think the state of global jihadism is and and what do you expect for the future? I mean, they, you know, at the moment, certainly for most Americans, it's out of sight and out of mind, uh, and that could change any day if there was some spectacular terrorist event. But you know, you you and I both in in very different ways have spent a lot of time thinking about this as a 
significant social problem, uh, you know, one of the, the more significant ones of our lifetime. And uh, yet it's really not, you know, it's not something I've been actively thinking about for quite some time because it's been supplanted by other things. What are your expectations for the future? I think it, it, we, sh- we need to get back to Saudi Arabia on this question. Mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia f- for a long time was, it, it had an official ideology, which was not jihadist. It was a quietist version of Sunni Islam that sort of suggested as an alternative to itself, jihadism. So the official Saudi state religion was a very conservative version of Islam, which was married to a political ideology that said you have to follow what the king says. You got to do what the king says. That's, that's it. And it doesn't take much to just change one logic gate there in the ideology and get rid of the follow what the king says part by saying the king's not actually a Muslim. The king's is you know, considering an alliance with Israel. So the way that MBS has changed the status of religion in Saudi Arabia is probably going to have long-term consequences for the fertility of jihadism worldwide. Saudi Arabia was, for decades, it was the place where you would go for some of the basic ideology that could be modified to turn into jihadism. And now it seems to be moving in a different direction. I mean, I talked with high-ranking clerics, the the minister of Islamic affairs, and I had a conversation where where he was justifying to me the opening of cinemas. And, you know, I told him, look, I I just saw Zombieland 2 double tap uh, in a theater here. What do you think of that? Knowing full well that all of his predecessors, even he personally, would have said 10 years ago that this is an abomination and we should never open cinemas. And he said that, you know, if there's a Zombieland 3, I'll go see it with Mm. you. Why not? So what what we're going to see is that Salafism and this extremely conservative version of Sunni Islam is it's lost the patron that has made it as 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 successful as it has been. So that's going to have a huge effect in many parts of the world in determining whether jihadism mm-hmm. is something that, that's that's exciting to people. There's also just the fact that that ISIS failed so spectacularly. Mm-hmm. I mean. ISIS had an ideology that was extremely attractive to a lot of people, but there was a catch, which is the ideology couldn't be true if if it was failing. Yeah, it it had to follow certain prophecies, and it just didn't follow those prophecies. It didn't succeed, and so I I think there's a generation of jihadists or wannabe jihadists who saw that happen and will. You know, maybe spend the rest of their lives pretending that they weren't so excited about it. So that the the efforts that were spent by you know by many countries in this world to discredit ISIS, they did not have effects that that were limited to just Syria and, and Iraq. They they showed people elsewhere that that you might consider another outlet for your for your energies. Mm. Do we still have the problem of the Saudis essentially exporting their jihadist tendencies? To the rest of the world, covertly by seeding mosques everywhere with ext- you know, what we consider to be extremist uh, Islam, and you know, all the while disavowing it to some degree internally. I spoke to Senator Chris Murphy, who's been a, a longtime critic of the Saudis, who says yes, we still have this under the table funding of extremism. 
I saw a lot of evidence that that was no longer the case. Mm. There's still an official creed in Saudi Arabia that's extremely intolerant, and that if you go to like pilgrimage sites, which most Muslims in the world think are very important to them, and then Saudis think are an abomination against the religion, you will see how the Saudis continue to to abominate those sites. So they're not. It's not as if they've become fully tolerant. And the, and the logic but, there is that the, the veneration of anything other than than the, the one true God is a form of you know, polytheism or shirk, right? That's exactly right. So the Saudis believe that if you're venerating a grave or praying to a saint, then you are saying that the lordship of God Almighty is shared with someone else. And that is not the case. So you become a polytheist. You're worse than a non-Muslim if you do mm. that. So that means most Muslims on planet Earth and who have ever lived are worse than non-Muslims in the official view of the Saudis. So that's a, that's a really extreme view that the Saudis just can't quite turn around on a dime. That said, it's really hard to overstate how important the funding was of this view, which again, can be converted to jihadism very easily around the world was how important the Saudi funding of that has been. And now it, it seems pretty much to have stopped. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've seen, for example, conferences that are about Sufi scholars. Sufis are one of those abominable groups to the Saudis officially. I've seen conferences that are about Sufi scholars, positive, like kind of fest shrift like conferences in honor of Sufi scholars that have been underwritten by Saudis in the last few years, right. which could never have been done before. So there definitely seems to have been a change. And then there's, of course, the internal changes that you, you see all over the place. That minister of Islamic affairs, who's a Woody Harrelson fan, mm -hmm. said to me that, that on day one, he's, he fired thousands of clerics. That seems to be true. Some of them were fired, some of them were fired and put in prison. So the internal move to defang the most radical among the clergy seems to be real. And I, I would be surprised if they weren't having policy effects overseas too. Mm. Okay. Well, to, to close out here, I, f I feel like I'd be remiss in not getting your current thoughts, reactions, concerns around uh, what's happening in Ukraine, because I know you, you have um, journalistic... Uh, for you, the, your your journalistic wheelhouse extends beyond Islam and related matters. Obviously, th this is another case where we are um, navigating the around or through or beneath or above the consequential sociopathy of a of an autocrat. This time, Vladimir Putin, who decided he wanted Ukraine. What's your view of the situation, and what what are you what most concerns you at this moment? So, I was last in Ukraine about 20 years ago. And then I was last in Russia just before the pandemic and, and spent several weeks there, actually. So it's actually from the Russian side that I think about this conflict with most concern. You know, I, I'm extremely impressed by Zelensky and the Ukrainian government and, and having fended off the Russians as they did. But my experience in Russia, I did a north to south transect of Russia from Murmansk to Derbent on the border with Azerbaijan. So a lot of small towns, as well as St. Petersburg and, and Moscow. Mm -hmm. And it was remarkable to me how much better a place Russia was in 2019 than it was in, say, 2001. Mm -hmm. And 
here's what's important about that. that for a lot of Russians, I think the baseline is the 1990s. Russia got as bad as it got could get in about 2000 when Vladimir Putin came to power. So, you know, Russians aren't, I think, going to ask themselves, are you better off than you were four years ago? It's, are you better off than you were 22 years ago? And the answer is yes, still. And that has really important implications for the end game for the Russia-Ukraine war. Because if we want Russia to get rid of Putin, then this, the sort of the perspective that, that a lot of Russians are going to have is that the 1990s sucked. They were extremely, they were, they were catastrophic for their country. It was bad for, for human health. And Russia basically became a, a shell of its former self. So I think we need to think when we talk about the end game for Ukraine about what the strategy is going to be, a precise strategy that would lead to what we evidently want for some good reasons, namely the end of, of Putin's rule. And for now, it seems sort of like the strategy is immiserate the country with sanctions and see what happens next, mm -hmm. which is just not a very precise strategy. And you know, having come up as a journalist during the Iraq war really taught me that you need a very precise strategy going forward. And I, I just don't see what that's going to be. So I'm, I'm very concerned about what happens next with the, the sort of long-term goals in Russia. Mm. Yeah, the level of effective propaganda there seems um, pretty flabbergasting. I feel like these stories out of Ukraine, you know, I mean, these are anecdotes, but I've heard many of them at this point where you have Ukrainians talking to their family members in Russia and finding that they're unable to persuade them that this isn't a, an entirely noble denazification effort. And uh, they, just, they just cannot get through to them about the true character of the war. And it's, it's, it is analogous to a phenomenon you know, that is virtually um, omnipresent anywhere. But on, on this front, it just, it's really, you know, you, you have, you know, people have a, a, a family member who gets involved in QAnon or something in the States, and they prove impossible to disabuse of those fantasies. But it's just, in this case, to have the bombs dropping on you and to be talking to a relative in Russia and to just encounter the, the stonewalling of a, of a cult member, it's surreal. Uh, you know, I, I don't know, what, do you know anything about the state of public opinion in Russia? And just because part of one of our hopes for regime change would be if enough people in Russia saw the war as we do, well, then there's some prospect of revolt or assassination or you know something that would, would oust Putin. It's definitely chilling to hear that people actually believe Russian propaganda to the letter. Mm -hmm. So yes, but you know, for me, it's still, I'm less concerned by the lies that people believe than certain truths that they see day to day, which is that their lives are better now, even today, than they were when Vladimir Putin took office 22 odd years ago. So I think it's going to be very difficult to persuade a lot of Russians who saw the gains from the low point around that point to today that they'd want to risk those gains with some kind of some terrible unknown that would be involved in in a transfer of power from from Putin a, a violent transfer of power of mm -hmm. course from from Putin. So you know you go to a Russian city 
go to Moscow, St. Petersburg, even Murmansk or Derbent, small cities, and you, you find that there are <laughs> they have good restaurants, they have good supermarkets, they have better parks, and if you go to Gorky Park, you you will find a nicer park than you can find anywhere in New York City. If you go to if you go to St. Petersburg, you will find culture that is the rival of what you can find in Paris. So in other words, you've, you've got cities that are basically functioning and they function very well in particular by comparison to how things were 20 odd years ago. Mm. And who's going to risk that? I hope that there are Russians who, who would be willing and brave enough to risk that. But that's something they can see that's, that's real. And then you combine that, of course, with whatever they believe about fake Nazis in the presidency of Ukraine. And you've got a really big problem on your hands if, if, if the, the, the satisfactory outcome here is the, the end of the Putin regime. Mm. I, I just don't see it happening very easily. Right. And also you combine it with the, the effects of effective sanctions insofar as those are actually being delivered, you know, so that it, it'll be very easy for Putin to convince many, many people, even most people, that the the sanctions are the you know born of just pure malice from the the West trying to destroy the quality of life of a blameless Russian people. Yeah, that's right. I I also think that the Russian people are not stupid, so they, they you know, some of them will be successfully lied to, but there's a lot of others who who understand Putin for who he is mm. and like him anyway, right? Because they think of him as a corrupt person a violent person and a vile person, but they think of him also as the guy who ended the chaos of the 1990s. You know, we, we think of him as a, uh, you know, a guy who rules violently with a few oligarchs doing his bidding. A lot of Russians think of him as the one who finally reigned in the oligarchs. Mm. So sort of like yeah, MBS, MBS, he, yeah. MBS pretty much says there's only space for one for one prince with an unlimited budget, Putin said the same thing. So in, in the past, in the 1990s, is extremely unsafe in Russia, in major Russian cities. And if you wanted to start a business, you'd need to figure out which oligarch to pay off to save you from another oligarch. <laughs> so it's a very unstable system. And then Putin comes along and says, no, there's only going to be one hegemon, and it's me. Anybody who tries to, to fight against me is, is, is going to be destroyed. So that means that even Russians who are savvy enough, smart enough to see Putin as a dangerous guy might actually prefer him because he's less dangerous than the chaos of, you know, 30 or 40 slightly less dangerous people all operating in the same place at the same time. Hmm. So I mean, one of the pleasant surprises of this horrible episode in Ukraine is that the Ukrainians have, have risen to the challenge and, you know, we're arming them however uh, slowly uh, and enable, helping them uh, do that. But there's a, there's a comparison I think you've made, correct me if I'm wrong, in the magazine with Finland and, what, you know, and their concerns around being invaded by Russia and why that is an unlikely prospect. What, what do we know about uh, the way the Finns have uh, prepared themselves for uh, a similar fate? Well, we know that they've actually experienced a similar fate uh, in the Winter War at the early days of the Second World War. Right. So they were invaded by the Soviets 
and they suffered terrible losses, but the Soviets suffered much worse losses. And the Finns learned from that experience because they actually have a defense policy that, that is built around the possibility of invasion. And the policy is effectively this. Every man in Finland gets a intense training in fighting. And then for the rest of his life, up until about the age of 40, he's compelled to go to national service to rejoin his unit. And then most of them decide to do that anyway, because they like it. They, mm. they, they like having a couple weeks out of, their, out of their schedule. So the way that the defense would work is you decide that you can't stop an invasion, just like Ukraine could not stop the invasion. You can't stop the, the Russians from coming in. What you can do and what the Finns, as a matter of doctrine, intend to do if this ever happens to them, is wait for the Russian armor to stop. People have to get out of their mm -hmm. tanks and their APCs and cook or pee or whatever, and then you kill them. Uh, and then you just never stop. You continue to kill them until they leave. So what is this? We have a, a nation of snipers, or what, what is the principal mechanism by which they would be killing invaders? Yep, snipers using some of the same platforms, weapons platforms that the Ukrainians are using right now. So it, it, it's a it's a, a technologically advanced military, and it, it's not entirely built for guerrilla war, but that's how they make themselves invasion-proof. Mm. And that's, by the way, what the Ukrainians didn't do. There's a, a military strategist, Edward Lutvak, who put this idea in my head, noting that the Ukrainians had failed to do it. So, you know, we are rightly very impressed by Vladimir Zelensky and by the Ukrainians' guerrilla efforts against the Russians. But you may remember when the Russians invaded, the Ukrainians hadn't done any of this. They right. had to play catch up in the, in the first weeks of, of the invasion. And what they could have done was prepare for it in advance. So you'd see like tens of thousands of rifles being distributed on the streets of Kiev a week after the invasion. The, Finnish, the Finnish version would be to train Ukrainians in advance and then distribute millions of rifles in advance. So in that case, there might have even been a deterrent effect that would have kept the invasion from, from taking place. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting picture. It's it's, it's also um, strange how it kind of echoes some of the um, dogma or propaganda or just um, accurate assessment of gun nuts in the United States, right? I mean, this is often the the rationale for the Second Amendment uh, in gun culture, which is you know if you have a nation of truly armed people for whom uh, gun ownership is a religious precept. You have a very different nation that, than one where no such right exists, and um, I, I mean, in that case, they're they're imagining probably not so much invasion, but the overreach of our own government. But um, in any case, it, it does become hard to handle millions of people who have guns and know how to use them. That's true. Although Finns aren't that hard to handle, they they get drunk and stab <laughs> each other in saunas now and then, but I, I don't think they shoot each other too often. I, I think. As a matter of defense policy, you want to be thinking about this if you are afraid of being invaded. Yeah. The United States doesn't have that, that problem, you know, red done notwithstanding. So if you're Estonia, if you're Ukraine, if you're Finland, this might be the strategy for you. And, and I think Zelensky has said in recent days that 
he views the future of Ukraine to be similar to the future of Israel, right? Like Israel has taken its the responsibility for its own defense on its own shoulders, almost without remainder. It's um, traditional um, partnership with the United States, notwithstanding. I mean, just every everyone who comes of age in Israel has to join the defense forces for some time. I guess this is a picture of more and more countries doing that. Yeah, although the the Israelis will actually take years of your life to be in the IDF as, mm-hmm. a, as a young person, which the Finns don't do. I think there's actually one other aspect that Zelensky might be thinking of when he says this about Israel, which is that Israel had to create, not exactly out of whole cloth, but but out of out of not very much, a national identity and dogma very quickly mm-hmm. that didn't exist before. And I, I think you know, Putin has kind of accidentally given the Ukraine um, exactly that. So Ukraine now thinks of itself as as a fiercely independent place in a way that it probably didn't in, you know, 1992. So I think there's a, a lot of, of parallels to, to Israel that, that might be going through Zelensky's head when he says that. Mm. Well, Graham, it's always fascinating. Uh, before we close out, uh, do you want to give me a preview of anything you're you're focusing on now? What's next for you in terms of your writing and research? I'm always thinking about jihadism, of course, but increasingly I'm thinking about Russia. So I wouldn't be surprised if the next pieces that I write have something to do with mm. that. Nice. Well, best of luck with that. Stay out of uh, Saudi. I, I, uh, <laughs> I think it's probably a good idea not to take that off the itinerary for the time being. I was recently on a flight to India, uh, and I saw a really good fare about half as cheap as, as yeah. other fares, and it had an eight-hour stop in Jeddah, uh, and I thought, it's not yeah, worth it. No, yeah. no. Find your discounts elsewhere. Right.